where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. We've assembled a list of hundreds of film scores that are considered worth talking about, and we've been assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us Hugo Friedhofer's score to the 1946 drama of veterans returning home, The Best Years of Our Lives. The Best Years of Our Lives was written for the screen by Robert E. Sherwood from a novel by McKinley Cantor. It was produced by Samuel Goldwyn, and it was directed by William Wyler. Andy, what are the best years of our lives anyway? The, the best years of our lives is <laughs> about three veterans who all return to their fictional hometown of Boone City, USA. They're, of course, happy to be home, but there's all kinds of subtle and sometimes not so subtle readjustments they have to make to civilian life. That's basically the subject of the movie, and it treats it in a bunch of different ways, and it was topical at the time, and it's kind of got a lot going on. (laughs) Okay, glad I asked. It stars Frederick March as Sergeant Al Stevenson, Dana Andrews as Captain Fred Derry, and non-professional actor Harold Russell as Seaman Homer Parrish, also starring Myrna Loy as Millie Stevenson and Teresa Wright as her daughter Peggy. Yeah, so at the beginning of the movie, we see Fred and Al and Homer taking a flight to Boone City together, and then one by one they go off into their lives, and Al has a good job, but he has to deal with the feeling that the world has kind of changed under his feet while he wasn't looking. Fred doesn't have a good job and has to deal with the hard drop down from being a distinguished captain to just being a soda jerk. And Homer has to deal with the major adjustment of having lost both his hands in the war. And the new burden that places on him, his parents, his girlfriend, his whole outlook. Good enough? Andy, it is now. It might not be, but uh, we can come back to it later. It's complicated. It's more complicated than other movies. It's not Batman. You heard it here first. The best years of our lives. Not Batman. Good enough. So, Andy, I wonder if you and perhaps eagle-eared listeners out there might have been able to detect a certain amount of grudgingness on my part that uh, this was our next assignment at the end of last episode. They must have been very eagle-eared because actually I think what they probably heard was the sound as though I had grudgingness. But that reflected some off-mic. Off-mic? I I know. We rarely say anything to each other off-mic, but we did (laughs) have a little back and forth about how you didn't want to do the movie. So then I was the one who ended up echoing it. But I actually was looking forward to this, and you weren't. Tell me about that, John. Look, I knew that it was highly regarded and that it was, you know, held up as a standard bearer for film scoring and that it was this very distinguished old movie. And I had watched it in class, you know, David Raxson in that class at USC that I was lucky enough to take with him. He showed this movie and so I had seen it and I knew about it. But I just had this sense that like, yeah, I know it's good, but it's kind of like uh, I had this eat your vegetables feeling about it. Mm -hmm. It had the stain of academia on it. Sure. It was something I knew was good for me, but uh, wasn't the tasty treat that I was craving. 
I'll say I was looking forward to it, but it was sort of in the spirit of looking forward to eating my vegetables. <laughs> what I remembered about this is that I had bought some books on film scoring when I was in high school and started getting interested in it because I was pretty much just looking for anything that had excerpts of printed scores from movies because that was just such a rarity. And so I had some books that had, you know, eight bars or 16 bars or one book that has many pages of reduced score from the best years of our lives. So I had sought out the movie then solely for that reason so that I could know what this score was that I was looking at. What I remembered from years and years ago is that I had liked it. I had thought, yeah, this is a good score and this is a pretty good movie. But that was my last recollection of this. So I was mostly just sort of looking forward to exploring something I didn't know about. Yeah, well, anyway, I uh, I faced up to my vegetables here and uh, I gotta say, boy, it tastes terrific. This, this was so good. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear you say that. I had a similar reaction, even though I wasn't dreading it as much. But I did come to it with a little bit of skepticism because it seems like the idea that this is a great score is like in the literature sort of received wisdom that keeps being republished. And so I came into it a little skeptical, like, all right, well, what is it going to be? And then within the first 10 minutes of the movie, I thought, oh, this is wonderful. This is truly wonderful. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you just look over that menu and order the asparagus <laughs> with the Bernays sauce on it, and it's just the best thing that you eat that night. And uh, Oh, yeah. I, I mean, this was great. I'm so glad. <laughs> and like asparagus, it stayed with me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm so glad that you feel that way, because I feel ready to just enthuse and gush about this. And had you not been in that same mood, I would have had to, you know, pick and choose what I uh, gush about. But now we can just uh, go for it. This is a fantastic score. Yeah. It deserves this reputation as one of the all-time great scores. And I didn't know I was going to think that until now, until I actually watched it. I guess we watched the same movie after all. The reason that I held out that thought that you might not be as excited about it as I was... I, you know, I thought that you might think that. ...was because <laughs> for all that's wonderful about this score and this movie, which is a really interesting movie, it is nonetheless very distinctly... Of its time. Sure. And if one has a very broad sense of skepticism about 40s movies and 40s orchestral sound, one I could imagine could think, well, this isn't outside of that. It's part of that. But that's part of what I was impressed by. It manages to be wonderful without reinventing the wheel. It just does everything better. <laughs> yeah, agreed. And yeah, this movie is absolutely of its time. In a sense, it's astonishingly topical. I kind of can't get over that they made this movie immediately after the sorts of events that it depicts would have been occurring because it really seems to come at it with a maturity of perspective that suggests more time has passed, but they really just put it up there immediately. Yeah, it's a movie that came out in late 1946 and it depicts events that we assume are taking place in late 1945 and early 1946. Yeah. And it seems like it wants you to know while you're watching it in the dramatic experience of the movie that you're not just watching a Hollywood storytelling. You're actually watching a kind of translucent, uh, like a scrim through which you can see your contemporary reality. The whole point of the movie is to give you thoughts about the present day. And a very notable way it does this is by including Harold Russell, an actual veteran who had lost both his hands, had them replaced with prosthetic, uh, they call 
call them hooks in this, but they're sort of grippers. I mean, <laughs> should we just call them hooks? He calls them hooks. Yeah, they're yeah, they're gripping hooks. They're like hooks where each hand has like a pair of hooks in like a tong formation that he can either separate or close if he wants to be you know holding on to something. He's very handy with them, if you'll allow me, uh, which is sort of the point. Yeah, but a major part of the point is that he is a non-actor. He yeah. really is this guy. And the movie wants you to be seeing that. It wants you to be thinking and feeling about real veterans in real life. I read that the production took pains to actually populate the crew with as many veterans as they could as well. Yeah, and you can imagine a cynical producer's reason for taking on something topical because it'll sell. And I'm sure that, you know, Sam Goldwyn's motivations had a great deal to do with that. But thanks to William Wyler and the cast and Harold Russell, who really does a remarkable job as obviously a non-actor acting... There's such a sense of interest in the truth and compassion for present-day reality. Yeah, I saw actually Sam Goldwyn tried to get Harold Russell to take acting lessons, and William Wyler got furious at him because he didn't want his naturalistic effect to be ruined. Yeah, Wyler must have had a vision of this. He saw Harold Russell in a uh, like an army-produced documentary movie about basically him getting his prosthetic hands, and it was sort of about the wonders that the army doctors can do. Yeah, it was like a PSA about readjusting to life with your prosthetic hands after you... Did you watch any of that? I did, no, I didn't watch the 1945 uh, army-produced PSA. Did you? I sought it out just to see, you know, what did he see? How much acting is oh, gosh. Russell doing in this? And you can see that in the manner of 1945, a documentary PSA is a very artificial thing, and it's got one of these narrators who tells everything like a story. So I sat there thinking of how I would have done it if I had met a girl like that when I still had my hands. I'd have had a conversation going in two seconds flat. And he shines in this fake but real environment of this kind of a documentary. However, in that movie, they dub his entire voiceover so that there's someone with a nice, rich, non-Boston accent voice pretending to be his inner monologue. So the Best Years of Our Lives is in some ways more realistic about Harold Russell's life. However, Harold Russell did not lose his hands in battle, as is suggested in the story he tells he, he was a... He was a demolition instructor. He was teaching a bomb-diffusing class that went wrong. Yeah. Let me just get my Harold Russell trivia out of the way here since we're talking about him so much. I think it's so cool that he is the only person to win two different Academy Awards for the same role. Right. Which happened because, as is often the case, people assumed they knew how things would go and they made plans <laughs> in advance based on that and then it didn't go that way <laughs> wait when has that ever happened in the oscars recently i don't know it happens at the oscars sometimes i gather that uh people think there's a sure thing and then it embarrasses them yeah he was considered a long shot to win the supporting actor competitive oscar so he was awarded earlier in the ceremony it is now my privilege to give a special award to Harold Russell, an honorary Oscar who, for being such an inspiration to veterans with his performance. Gave inspiration to his fellow veterans and quickened his fellow Americans' pride in their country. Because Please the Academy thought there was no way he would actually win. And then later on that night, he did actually win for the role against the field. Thank you very much. Two in a night is just too much. Thanks a lot. Yeah, there's something special about the performance. It's stunt casting, but what he does is not just a stunt. 
Homer, the character that he portrays, goes through a lot of different stuff on screen. And uh, boy, if you put me there and said, just be you, just be a normal person and pretend that these things are happening to you as a non-actor, I would be stressed out. It would really make me uncomfortable. And he has a really wonderful, natural sense of belonging on screen with Frederick March and Dana Andrews and having a relationship with some actress portraying his girlfriend on screen. He really does a good job. It's true, he does. And I think he is really boosted in his scenes particularly by the score. Yes. Hey, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the score. So the movie's effect and its intent is to give us access to feelings about things much more real and important than a movie. Hmm. The wonder of this score that I think we're now both going to be very praiseful of is that it does that. It makes you feel things that are, for me anyway, so much more valuable than just getting worked up about some character that I'm going to see in a movie for two hours. Yeah, I felt like the emotions that the screenplay set out to deal with are complex. You know, it really courted complexity about everything it was showing in these people's lives. And I think it did that in a very mature way. And Hugo Friedhofer's score dealt with those emotions sincerely and deeply, I think. I think he really tried to think about the conflict within the characters and the shades of emotions that counterbalance one another. I feel like he had that kind of an instinct for what he needed to be doing. Yeah. And if you think about what goes on in this movie, it just barely qualifies as plotted in the sense that most movies, especially studio movies of this period, felt absolutely dependent on fulfilling certain plot mechanics. And this really is just a look at various kinds of problems that intertwine and that intertwine and echo each other and move past each other you know in the night a certain amount but it's really yeah vignettes i mean there is a plot to the degree that there is a love story that emerges and then uh, you know is someone cheating on someone and is someone going to lose their job and these kinds of things feel sort of like traditional movie points yeah but even those points don't you think that they're treated with much more realistic complexity to them than the time period you know the unfaithfulness that's depicted is shown as sympathetic in a way that's anachronistic i feel like oh yes it's very very striking how essentially the movie's attitude is compassion for absolutely everyone in it yeah and everything that goes on compassion is such a good word Uh, you know (laughs) break it down what's the word made out of compassion you know with (laughs) with feeling with emotion it's feeling with people and like i said this score is feeling along with the characters right the music even when it sounds superficially like the sort of going style of the music of the time it is not pushing the ups and downs of the action in the way that was standard it is almost always about that compassion about the meaning of these things about the lives and their value so let's contrast it with the ups and downs of the action that was the style that this broke away from. You know, we have talked about Friedhofer on our show before. Last episode, we recapped that he was an orchestrator in Hollywood for a long time and 
orchestrated for Max Steiner writing the score to Gone with the Wind in addition to he actually just flat out wrote some of the cues himself in Gone with the Wind. Yeah, he orchestrated for maybe 50, I think is the number I saw. He orchestrated for most of Max Steiner's scores at Warner Brothers for some years before this. So he orchestrated Gone with the Wind and then also The Adventures of Robin Hood for Corn Gold, another score that we've talked about on our show. Right. He did pretty much all of Corn Gold's scores. He was considered, you know, the most skilled, the most tasteful the most insightful orchestrator, and that's why the top guys like Korngold and Steiner wanted him for at least a decade before this. But uh, you may recall, I did not care for the score to (laughs) Gone with the Wind. I liked, you know, Robin Hood is great, but I did not care for Steiner's Gone with the Wind. You know, Friedhofer was very much part of that machine, and it seems to me that he is making a conscious effort to retune that machine for a different purpose to uh he's breaking down the bomber and turning it into a uh, house <laughs> <laughs> that's nice yeah i mean don't you think don't you feel like this is sort of the same engine that drove gone with the wind but it's had all of its fittings changed and it's just you know it's pumping in a different direction yeah i feel like you hear steiner in some moments in this but i dare say being bested at his own game oh sure you hear other things i mean we'll talk about how much you hear aaron copeland but he stays with scenes for a very long time. There are four or five scenes here that I really think are astounding displays of being able to stay with the drama and compose music that's continuously thinking and responding. And yes, Steiner would do the same kind of, you know, filling the space with music. But the subtlety, the sensitivity here is so much greater. It feels almost like a different craft. Absolutely agreed. Here, can I play an example uh, of this very thing we're talking about, I think? Please, go ahead. A moment that I found so moving and so impressive is when Frederick March, Al Stevenson, arrives home and sees Smyrna Loy for the first time. I can't believe you picked out the very thing that I was so excited to pick out. We did it. (laughs) (laughs) We did it again. Yes. Well, I mean, it's a standout as this. And yes, it parallels with things that are done in Gone with the Wind, very unflatteringly to Gone with the Wind. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. So you remember when we talked about Gone with the Wind, there are a number of embrace cues, moments (laughs) of characters having a rush of passion or relief or whatever, emotion, and they come together. And of course, that's one of the great joys of cinema is love on the screen. And Max captures that in the orchestra. And when we had the conversation, you really had no tolerance for this whatsoever. And I was trying to give credit to a flair for the shamelessness of that and for the effect that it has and for understanding at least where the peaks and valleys were and giving them orchestral backing, things like this. In the best years of our lives, what Friedhofer is doing is essentially, if you stand way, way back and can only see, you know, one pixel of dramatic resolution, it's the same thing. They uh, they see each other. Oh, they feel such emotion. They come together and embrace. And so the music gets louder and more lyrical at this moment, as it might. But when you zoom in, he's still thinking throughout. There are so many things going on here, melodically, texturally, harmonically. 
he makes every moment of the performance of the directing, of the layers of what this means to these characters, it's all alive in there. You hear this pivotal motif, we'll talk later about what it means, but this da 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 da. That's sort of the core of the whole movie, of the whole emotional life of this movie. Sure, it's the first thing you hear. It's the first thing you hear and it informs everything. Yeah. And as he starts to anticipate this moment of finally seeing his wife after years away from her, it's starting to roll and build up energy. And then she appears and now there's two voices of it, one low and one high. That's an old-fashioned idea for the two lovers, perhaps, but he's doing it in such a mature way. This change here... You don't see this chord coming. That's the sense of a new emotion entering. And then the figures intertwine and reach this peak, which is beautiful and sort of the traditional peak, but it reaches it elegantly, and then it continues evolving and it goes in this direction. They embrace for a long time, and they're still embracing. People have different feelings over the course of a long embrace. It's not just an extended photograph. We feel them emotionally processing, and now it finds its way out as they find their way out. I think it's so great that you picked out this sequence because I wanted to run through this sequence too and give a play-by-play and the plays that I was going to by-play here are different than the ones you highlighted. Yeah, what stands out to you? I was really impressed by the moment-to-moment progression that leads into their reunion and I think it's built around getting up to this one high note and he gets up to it in different ways and he puts these high notes on these specific moments that are just so incredibly well chosen, that are so meaningful to real thought about what's happening. So he rings the doorbell at his apartment, his son opens the door and he immediately shushes his son because he wants to surprise Murnaloy, his wife. There's this like little murmuring build-up figure as he had kind of the same interaction with his daughter, Teresa Wright. But, you know, the main event is for when Myrna Loy realizes. So she's busying herself with some chores in the kitchen or something, and she realizes who was at the door. Why aren't I hearing my children talk to them? Oh, it dawns on her. It's because it's my husband has arrived. She stops. Her back is to the camera, and you can see her realization, you know, through the back of her head, because the music stops on this high note. The music had gotten up to that one high note over the course of this kind of anxious build-up. Where's mom? Who's that at the door, Peggy? Peggy! Rob, who was... The high note hangs there because she's hanging on this realization. And then the music kind of backs up and builds itself back up to that same note, but quickly this time, more directly, more purposefully. 
that falls right on her turning around this time. It so perfectly captures the crystallization of the resolve in her and what's happening and what it means. And then we get built up to that same high note again a third time. And this time it's even more melodic. It's even more realized. Now the camera cuts to the hallway of their apartment and she steps into the hallway and she finally sees him. And so these three notes kind of are the clothespins that this line is being hung from. So whether or not a listener is tracking it consciously, I really think that there is a sense of the boundaries of the melody that have been established. Being brought back up to the boundary and then surpassing a boundary, I really think are things that you hear and sense even if you're not paying attention to it. You mean a pitch boundary? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I mean the range of notes that the melody encompasses. If you analyze, you know, great melodies, you very often find that there's a lot of care taken and purpose to when the high note is reached and then perhaps even when a higher note is reached. You kind of hold that in your head, the height of the notes that we've heard. And so building up to this note in these three different ways, it touches something in the listener as you're watching and it really feels like this genuine experience, you know, of her realization of her stopping, her turning, and her seeing him. The progression of it is just so intuitively sensed in the music. And then, yes, now they finally embrace, and now we get up to yet a higher note. up to a ceiling three times, and then we break through the ceiling, and it's glorious, it's joyful. It's interesting to me that you are highlighting pitch height as this expressive thing here, because that's exactly what you most detested about Max (laughs) Steiner's technique. But see, that's the difference, though. I think that Friedhofer treats pitch height as something to take great care with. If you're going to get up to a boundary and surpass it, you really have to be motivated in doing that. And I felt the deep connection and the motivation of getting to that note and then getting above that note in this case. Whereas Steiner just moves up and down the whole time. His whole point of Steiner's writing is that there are no boundaries. You hear something, you may as well hear it again higher. Why not? Here it is again. Here it is up here. Here it is over there. He's constantly blurring the idea of the meaning of these boundaries. He's Well, I, I would characterize it that he has a very broad and schematic sense of, are we higher or lower than the previous thing? Generally, I think the directions Steiner picks are the correct directions, but at what you said now, that Friedhofer's sense of why each time the melody takes on new territory, yeah. it is motivated because it is felt... And just throughout almost every line in the score, it feels like Friedhofer cares compositionally about what he's expressing, not just by, you know, a big slant up or a slant down, but by each different voice in the texture. If there's three voices, they're all doing something that has something to do with what's on screen. And, you know, 
I'm praising the nuanced, continuous life of this music as it develops, and you're praising the sensitivity of each turn of the line, but there's still a whole element of this that we haven't even gotten at, which is that the motives out of which this music are built have already accrued meaning by this point in the movie. That's right. And they are conveying things because this score has an incredibly deep and sophisticated use of themes and motives. Long ago, I remember saying in one of these conversations that I at least like to try and make a distinction between themes and light motifs, which a lot of times people will use that term for anything that corresponds to a character. If there's a sequence of notes that corresponds to a certain theme or character in a movie, they call it a light motif. And I said, well, when Wagner used the term light motif, it had to do with the ways these things would evolve and connect to each other and kind of live musical lives that corresponded to the drama. And then in most movies, what you're really just seeing is themes. This score, this is a truly leitmotivic score, I think to a level of sophistication that we essentially haven't seen in any other score. I can't think of one anyway. We've done a lot of scores at this point. But I was just so impressed and moved by the rich and sort of unsummarizable depth of the meaning these motives get across. And in this scene, each of these things we've just been talking about, the figure that you hear when Myrna Loy turns around and the figure that you hear when they embrace each other and the figure that you hear as their embrace evolves, these are each different things. And it has already gotten complicated at this point in the movie. And I mean, some of them, the audience can't possibly know quite what they refer to yet because He's basing a lot of the music for Frederick Marsh's character, Al Stevenson, on this old song that is their song, you know, the popular tune from 20 years prior that, you know, they danced to at their wedding or whatever, which is some old song called Among My Souvenirs. There's nothing left for me, all days that used to be, there's just a memory among my souvenirs. He asked to have that song played at the bars, you know, when they go out carousing in the scene after this one. You, you know, among my souvenirs, huh? there's nothing left for me. We learned that Among My Souvenirs is their song. But before that association has been made clear to the audience, as he is walking up to the door of his apartment, we hear a solo cello playing around that tune. Yeah, and then it's part of this buildup for their reunion. Right. Treating it not as his theme, as motivic material, developing it, using it to spin out those moments of his life. Yes, you're right. We don't consciously associate it. And I must say that a normal viewer, by the end of the movie, is not probably going to consciously associate its appearances in the score. No. For all that people have assigned names to the themes and motives in this movie, and there are some accepted names for these because they've been in the literature for a while, we can talk about what a long paper trail this movie has, but I don't think that's how they play. This is also something I've said on previous shows. It can be very misleading to say the love theme when 
a viewer isn't naming it and might not be experiencing it that way. And I think Friedhofer's use of his material here is so flexible and nuanced and complex that I don't think a listener is going to know that any theme is for anything. They're just going to hear this complex texture. But I think it's all so right. It feels so right. It's so emotionally intuitive and smart that these connections that I'm not going to try and name and talk about are going to work. But yeah, I don't think anyone ever thinks, oh, right, it's Al, so uh, we're going to hear Among My Souvenirs. I didn't notice it until I started reading analyses of this score afterward. No, I didn't either. (laughs) But what I certainly noticed, no matter how little you listen to the music, you hear this, it's echoing in your head, you hear it throughout, is these first four notes at the very, very beginning of the main title. Da-da-da-da! They're the ur motive for this movie, Mm -hmm. which is a third coming up and then an octave above that, the same third coming down. It's a leap up to a smaller step down, and that contour shows up everywhere. Yeah, a leap up to a fallen third, or just a fallen third, pretty much generates everything. had to whittle this score down to just two notes that drive it i would say it's da da okay what do you think yeah i think that's right pretty much every theme if you look at it either starts with that or builds up to that sure the love theme for homer and wilma is pegged on that yeah those are the first two notes of it da 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 exactly we'll hear all of these themes that relate to that so a sub-motive that evolves out of the main motive in the first big musical sequence when the guys are on their flight home and they're returning to Boone City and looking out of the plane at everything and then taking a taxi ride, there's this motive of excited homecoming, if you want to give a name to it. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da
in this soulful solo cello way. That's his processing the moment before he knocks on the door. Then he knocks on the door, and that starts to convert into this murmuring. Because that's the emotional truth of this now. It's the family's there and the kids are there. And then Myrnaloy turns around and this figure, which later sort of attaches to her because of this moment where the homecoming becomes the homecoming to her and then she becomes the symbol of home or something like that. You can analyze it a number of ways. And then she steps out. And so this motive that we hear here, da-da-da-da, when they see each other, I mean, what would you say this motive means? I feel like this is the crux of interpreting the whole score. What is the significance of that motive? You're talking about that first thing you hear in the score, the two-thirds separated by an octave. Yeah, which I saw some people calling it the octave theme or the octave motif. Well, look, I know it's a hard question. Yeah. Uh, muse on this and let's return to it because I think it goes very deep, whatever is being said here. You want me to make up some kind of uh, philosophizing about what the octave jump means? I can do that. Well, save it because we're going to have ample opportunities to talk about it. But whatever this is, it's the core of the movie. This is a moment that counts as access to that core. And then it informs this embrace. And then as the sigh of the initial moment of the embrace comes down... This is the continuation of Among My Souvenirs. Right. Da, 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 da. And then as we see the kids looking on, especially Peggy, who turns out to figure into the movie as a major character. Unlike her brother, who disappears. Unlike her brother, who goes away. <laughs> <laughs> we get this slowed down variant of the song-like figure that we heard in the homecoming cue a moment ago when they were on the plane. Da, 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 da. which is itself obviously a variant of the main motive, but it's slightly different because it has this da-da-da at the beginning. And then that motif is going to attach itself to Peggy, the daughter. You know, what these motives are saying to us is he has arrived home in the sense that this is the anticipated homecoming, in the sense that his memories of home are in play, his personal sense of home, which is what I take the Souvenirs song to mean. And in the sense of that da-da-da-da-da, that's called the Boone City theme in the writing about it. That this is a place is sort of what I take that to mean. And then da-da-da-da, the main thing. I mean, it's something about the actual meaning of life or love or some very root emotional stuff. And that this is a moment when he feels in touch with that. Yeah, here's what I made up about it is that, you know, an octave is a very uh, powerful and significant interval because it's a big interval. It's a wide distance for notes to travel. And yet somehow, perhaps paradoxically, the notes that you hear when you get to the other side of that distance, you call them the same notes. You know, you have this sense of these notes being different instances of the same notes if they're an octave apart. And so hearing the same interval of a third from a G to a B flat in a lower octave and then from a B-flat to a G in the higher octave, you know, it's about it being the same but different, coming back to the same place, but having it still be across a distance, you know? You can't go home again, but you're still home again. What do you think about that? Well, that's very fancy and fast that you came up with that, but... Uh, Thank you! That's so specific to this scenario. <laughs> 
<laughs> Look, I can make that fit to whatever. <laughs> I know. I, I believe you. There are places where he plays directly to the octaveness of it, the fact that it's just a framework that underpins everything else. It's some ground level of the human condition. And I find those very moving. And pretty much the first thing you hear in the score after the main title is that when you see Homer waking up in the morning that they're arriving home on this airplane that they're taking home and looking out at the sunrise, you hear the sense of existence, something like he's looking at the sunrise and it's da 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 It's just like the truth is what it sounds like to me. Yeah, that's good. Here's another moment where I also want to point out the spotting because, yeah, they get into this decommissioned bomber and they're sitting in the nose of it, which has, you know, a clear plexiglass canopy that everybody can look down and see out of. So it's this panoramic view that they all get. We see these nice shots of the sky and the clouds and flying. There's no music for that. You might be tempted to put, you know, nice music over nice clouds in the sky. But instead, crucially, you just hear the noise of the airplane engines. And he lets that go to just be there. And then I think also he lets it go because the sound of airplane engines are going to wind up being important to him and to the audience. And it helps to establish the kind of sober, compassionate, realistic attitude of the movie that it's not going to play music just because the picture on screen is kind of cool. Exactly. It's going to play music because the people on screen are feeling things about what the picture is. Because the moment that he chooses to bring in the sound of the truth, like you said, what's on the screen at that moment is not a picture of the sky or the view. It's a picture of Homer's face looking at it. And, you know, as I said... Harold Russell does a fantastic job for a non-actor, and he has a good expression on his face, but it is just the same expression, static, for a long time here, and it's a fairly blank expression, and this is such a powerful initial use of music, and it's not exactly the Kuleshov effect, is that what it's called, where you feel something based on what you saw right before the face? You've mentioned Yeah, yeah, I've referenced that without being able to remember the name of it, yeah. Right, well, I think the official Kuleshov effect refers to that. You've looked it up since then? Since then, two years ago or whenever that was, yes. I think that that's show a blank face. And if you show montage, if you edit in other things, then people associate them. So that's not what this is. But this is essentially a blank face. And the music plays not just emotion, but a sequence of emotions, a whole thought process that Homer is having. This unchanging face is thinking about a series of things, and we can feel what they are. First, he looks at the sunrise, and we hear this kind of awaking to the feeling of existence or something like that. And there's this chordal cadence that comes from the main title for the glory and the spectacle of the sunrise. But then we hear the theme from the main title, da 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 da, which comes to be associated with their never seen prior military service, wouldn't you say? Okay, yeah, because it starts off with this kind of bugle call fanfare. Yeah has an association with taps, at least in my head. Yeah, yeah. I think that's intentional. Yeah. But anyway, here you hear it in a form that you're going to hear it most of the times it appears in the movie with this descending bass line through some unhappy notes. I take this to be memories of the war or thoughts about his injury 
It comes up later when he's lying in bed feeling glum. And then you hear these warm hymn-like chords, which is a whole other theme. that comes to be associated with his home, with his parents, with his relationships to his past. Even if you don't know any of that stuff, each of these things has the right harmonic sound that you kind of gather that Homer's thinking about the sunrise and what it means to be a person and existential feelings. that he's a returning soldier with prosthetics and injured and there's this darkness hanging over him. And then he's thinking about what he remembers about life at home, what Boone City means to him, who he is in a home sense. And it's the essential conflict of the movie between his new self affected by his service and his past self as a civilian at home. This music is about him trying to reconcile that in his head before the moment comes, and you know it and you feel it, and what you're looking at on screen is just essentially a still image of him. It's spectacular. Can't praise this enough. And then the next whole sequence that comes out of this is glorious. Yeah, man. I love this music so much. It feels so good, and it matches the movie in an interesting way. Now everyone's awake, you know, their final approach, looking out through the window, they see the city, and then they see a sequence of things and comment on them. There's a golf course. People playing golf. Just as if nothing had ever happened. Hey, there's Jackson High football field. Boy, I sure would like to have a dollar for every forward pass I threw down there. If you took away this music, the performances are some guys who just slept on the floor and woke up and are a little sleepy, trading, you know, offhand comments about stuff they see out the window and sort of keeping their feelings to themselves. The things they comment on, Homer sees the football field where he used to play football. Frederick March and Dan Andrews exchange a little look behind his back about, oh, he won't be able to throw a football anymore. Then they see this scrapyard of hundreds and hundreds of planes being turned to scrap and all of that that signifies. Some of them look brand new from the factory to the scrap heap. That's all good for now. Each of these things has major story significance. But Friedhofer does not play a sequence of events at this point. He plays the unspoken feeling, which is this thrill and joy and this steady, easy song-like thing, conversational but with a steadily moving bass line underneath. It's such a sweet melody. And this music goes continuously. Now they're in a cab driving on the streets and they're taking in the sights and sounds of small town USA. You know, it feels a little more grounded, I think, for when they're in the cab. It doesn't have quite the butterflies in your stomach excitement of when they were first looking at it out the window. But then we get up and go again. Yeah, he doesn't score the stuff they're saying to each other. But the thing he does score is when they see like a cool car with some teenagers in it. That actually gets energy because that actually relates to the way these guys are feeling. It's youthful, the rejuvenating feeling of returning home. And then this montage of the stuff out the window, which looks to me like real stolen shots of real people on the street. It's 
just people sitting on a bench and uh, like a Woolworths. It's not trying to say anything about this is specifically great, just that it's a human society and uh, it's functioning and it's safe. I just find this incredibly moving that he scores this with this exuberant singing music. You know, this is like as patriotic as I get, is this feeling of like, this is a good place. It's good that all of this is going on. And it's motivically meaningful in that da-da-da-da-da. That's a variant of the main motive. And then these da-da-da, these chords, they're going to be the chords that relate to home. He's linked them up into this melody that runs together. So at the end of this sequence, which has all been kind of flow and rhythm and anticipation, now he does one of his great moves where he scores the change of feeling before it registers on the characters. When they're approaching Homer's house and Homer starts to feel trepidation about, uh-oh, what's it going to be like when they see me with the hook hands? I kind of don't want to deal with this. The music changes before any dialogue or even knowing looks happen on screen. This is my It happens at exactly the moment where the audience thinks, does this music mean he's feeling reluctant? Yeah. And then you see the characters in the scene register it as though they're reacting to the vibe because the music is the vibe. It happens perfectly. And now he's here and now this home theme that we've felt coming the whole time because it's been part of everything, now here it is. Say, how about the three of us going back to Butch's place? We'll have a couple of drinks and then we can go home. You're home now, kid. Well, so long. So long, Homer. Yeah, so then he is reunited with his parents and with his girlfriend. They are, of course, overjoyed to see him, but then things get real when they see that he's got hooks for hands, which they knew about ahead of time, but it's still a shock to see it. His two new friends drive off in the cab, and he salutes them as they drive away. And yeah, the degree to which he kind of slightly sours this military service motif for this salute, it's just exactly the right shade. It still has all the nobility and gravitas of the service that the whole movie wants to honor, but there's just something ironic in the texture that he chooses and the orchestration, you know, he still has this great sense of color and he uses these muted brass tones to, yeah, just turn it a little towards, but at what cost? resonates so readily with all of the characters dealing with this difficult situation. Yeah, really on my first viewing, I watched this sequence thinking, oh, he found a way to catch that and that. He's staying with it. He's not letting anything drop. The moment when the parents embracing, that's this hymn-like music. Right. And then Wilma, his girlfriend, comes out and we get a presentation of the theme strongly associated with her. We hear it first on a solo violin. And she comes and embraces him. Then on the reverse angle of him not being comfortable enough to put his hook hands up into her hair, he just leaves his hands by his side. 
it resolves to a surprise minor chord simply just the right way. And then as his mother sort of stifles a cry when she sees him using the hooks for the first time, the cadence from the main title, these sort of dignified chords, we get a variant of them but it sits over this bass note in a way that shifts in between the major and the minor. Well, oh, Don, I'll carry it. <laughs> What's the matter, Ma? It's nothing. He's it's moving these triads Ma, around so, so that you, you hear an E. Yeah, I know. In this chord, suggesting a C sharp minor, but then, oh, well, it's only because that chord was doing its own thing. The chord moves around, well, it really was just heading toward a C-sharp major. It gives a perfectly calibrated sense of mixed feelings and why they're mixed and how they're mixed. Absolutely, yes. That is exactly the thing that I kept praising him for as I was going through and noting things about this score. The perfect calibration of how to mix these complex emotions, because he's really thinking about it. You know, he's in there with the emotions. Another spotting decision that I wanted to mention after you pointed out that the music turns just at the right time before the characters themselves react to the change in the vibe. At the end of the sequence later in the movie, when Myrna Loy brings Frederick March breakfast in bed, there's a reprise of the music that was for their initial embrace that we've already talked about so much. And again, he sets this music going before they even are thinking about embracing each other, just because the reality in the air of their reunion and their relationship is valid, is there. The moment when Frederick March grabs her and kisses her, right? Yeah, but the music knew he was going to do it before he did. Yeah, I feel like the music plays the moment that he reaches internally that I just have to grab her. I just have to grab her and kiss her. Yeah. Breakfast? I have work to do. That's when he has the feeling, and then it takes him a couple seconds before he does it. But you feel it, and yeah, it's brilliantly done. Yeah, he has such a sensitivity, Friedhofer, for what's in the air between characters. A little earlier, after their initial reunion, he's asking Myrna Loy whether or not she's taught her daughter about the birds and the bees, and she says, what, for instance, do you think I should have told her about? (laughs) You know, it's a reference to their own attraction for each other and their relationship to each other, and there's this space in the dialogue, and he again gets up to that same high note and hangs it in the air to accentuate the air between them. Told her all the things she ought to know. What, for instance? Well, have you? He just feels it so keenly. And I think it's cool that you highlighted that cue because that's one of the lesser cues. Like, yeah, we're going to talk about a bunch of tour de force kind of sequences that I can't help myself but want to talk all the way through. But then there's a lot of other scoring just, you know, for scenes. (laughs) That seems to me one of them. But even in the sort of, I just have to score this scene so that it got some musical lift to it, the music knows exactly what the scene is. The music knows exactly what is happening at each moment. It's never wallpaper. Yeah, so why does this music feel like it is really grappling with with stuff that is worth grappling with. And the music that preceded this, that he helped Steiner write for Gone with the Wind and other stuff, does feel like wallpaper to me. 
I really believe that there is a connection between this quote-unquote American sound that Friedhofer is exploring and expanding upon kind of contemporaneously with Aaron Copland, the composer that is most closely associated with. I really think that there is something to that particular language of writing that is more emotive and more real than the Wagnerian style that Steiner is utilizing. Yeah, spoken like an American. <laughs> Thanks. Don't you agree? Yes, speaking as another American, yes. I mean, someday in the infinite future, we will talk about Aaron Copeland's actual film scores, which were quite influential and... And influential specifically on this movie. Copeland had started writing film scores in the late 30s, is that right? And certainly in the early 40s, William Wyler, the director of this movie, sat with Friedhofer and told him that he wanted an American sound for this picture. And I think he referenced, you know, scores that Copeland had written in the early 40s. Of Mice and Men and Our Town were the really influential scores he wrote in 39 and 40. Mm -hmm. This is Our Town. The thing to be said about Aaron Copeland that we find ourselves talking about Aaron Copeland so frequently on this because... It's just that huge an influence on the sound of American movies that has persisted. Yes. He very consciously, deliberately, set out to try to find something that could be a populist American sound. That was a project he really set himself for musical and sort of political reasons. Copeland did. Copeland, yeah. Yeah. He felt that he had been writing music that, while it was very real and sincere to him, was nonetheless in some sense abstruse enough that he felt that he had still his task of figuring out how to meet the public and speak to them and find a voice that would characterize the character of this nation. He worked that out and came up with a compositional language that related to his non-Americana music. It was his personal language. And you know, we've had some astute correspondents who said, you keep talking about Aaron Copeland, but there were other people doing that, and Virgil Thompson's scores to The Plow That Broke the Plains and things like that were also significant. Sure. And Ferdy Grofe and that school. Yeah, sure. he was not alone, but his work in this direction was ultimately the most influential. So we've brought up Copeland sounds in several other episodes talking about his approach to cowboy sounds in the West when we were talking about Elmer Bernstein and the Magnificent Seven and talking about pat political gestures in the 90s. Yeah, we talked about how his fanfare for the common man style trumpet calls keep resounding in things about outer space like Apollo 13. But there is an element of Aaron Copeland's actual writing that hasn't been much mimicked or followed on this pared-down aspect of Copeland's approach. And Friedhofer here actually does that, understands that style and what it means. And I think you're right. The dedication to economy and not using more than is called for, putting the ideas across in the form they need to exist rather than beefing them up, it conveys something of authenticity, yeah. So what exactly is it that he's paring down? Well, the orchestra in many places. That's true. I mean, there are some places with quite a large orchestra and large orchestra effects, but there are others where there are distinctly chamber-like effects that were not commonly heard in movies, even at this date of 1946, when Homer goes in to tuck his little sister into bed. A 
A lot's going on in this music, like in every scene, it's thinking about the previous sequences, but he's using a small string group where you can hear the individual instruments. A sense of chamber scale music for a chamber scale moment yeah. in someone's life. Intimate indoor feelings. That's beautifully done. But uh, I think, crucially, what he has pared down and, you know, what the Copeland School is about paring down is what notes you use, right? Well, yeah, what notes you use is, uh, is music, so <laughs> tell me more. All right. So broadly speaking and, you know, oversimplifying by a lot, we can say that the ingredients that Copeland decides that he's going to put into his music are what are called diatonic notes as opposed to chromatic notes. Am I off base yet? No, I agree. Diatonic notes are the notes that are part of a scale. So if you look at a piano, if you can imagine the white and black notes on a piano, if you play only the white notes, then you're going to get a C major scale. All of the black notes don't fit into that scale. So if you use only the notes within that scale, those are called the diatonic notes. All of the notes, including the white and the black notes, are called the chromatic scale, like this. And that's all of the notes. That Wagnerian European sound that Steiner used that I was complaining about it sliding around and just doing the same thing but up a half step and up a half step and up a half step and how that makes me feel unmoored from real emotion. That technical style is sometimes called chromaticism and Copeland's style is diatonicism or sometimes pan-diatonicism because he treats all notes of the major scale, all the white notes if you're in the key of C, he kind of treats them equally and combines them in ways that you wouldn't combine them if you were just gonna play standard triads. Copeland decides that in order to make an American sound, as he did here in one of his most important pieces, Appalachian Spring, he decides, I am going to limit myself to a narrower palette of notes and put those notes together in perhaps new ways, but by constraining myself to this set of notes, you know, that'll be the character of what I'm writing. So it is within that system of restraint and enforced simplicity that I find it meaningful when you butt up against a boundary, a high note, and then overswell the banks of it. It feels meaningful to me because of the restraint and because of the systematic way of arraying these notes together. That's why I find that meaningful here and not in Steiner, <laughs> because the height of the notes don't mean anything to Steiner. I mean, that's cruel and oversimplified too, but you come on. You get no, I know what you're saying. You're saying that in a constantly chromatic style, you are basically saying... I can do anything I want at any time, which right. means that most things you do lose their significance because it's in a field of anything at any time. And yeah, a very restricted musical language is also a musical language in which everything speaks because every choice registers as a choice. I think that this idea of restraint about not using all of the notes but finding what you need in a certain subset of them and then using ingenuity to build new things out of a small set of atomic ingredients, economy and efficiency 
are quintessentially American ideals, you know, when it's in its highest mind thinking about itself. But it also feels expressive. It forces the composer to think hard about what is being written. You know, I've heard the rule of law described as those wise restraints that make men free. I find that, you know, in my own work, and I think in a lot of creative endeavors, having restraints put on you allows your creativity to flourish. And this is like constraint at a basic atomic level that, to my ears, just pins it to emotion and pins it to a picture with a certain broad-backed strength to it. What do you think? Am I being uh, highfalutin with this? No, I, I think, first of all, completely is true about the strength of the Copeland and Copeland-descended styles that they audibly kind of sweep away a lot of pile-up of traditional complication and create a new space. And that does correspond to an American myth, an American identity narrative of that this is a new space where we're just being people for a change. And in fact, for all that this is a movie about America at a certain time in American history and servicemen coming back from fighting with the American armed forces, they don't talk about any of that stuff in sort of the obvious sentimentalized populist ways that were standard. Very little, anyway. I don't think they say the word America once in the movie. Hmm. And yet you feel that there's some kind of national sentiment. And I think that the operative national myth here really is the one you're talking about, the one that's implicit in the music about the dignity of things being unadorned, just being yeah. themselves. And I think it really is to the movie's benefit that they leave it essentially unspoken. They leave it to the music. I think that's a big part of why this movie has had lasting success and even more than lasting success, enormous not quite as lasting success. It was just a mega hit. It was like the most successful movie of the 40s. It was the biggest box office champion since Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Although, did you see why that was? It was at least in part because Sam Goldwyn tried out a concept he had that uh, good movies should cost more. <laughs> this movie had a fixed ticket price that he set higher because he felt like he could get people to pay more for a movie that was actually good, and he did. He was charging people extra for the 3D glasses of American realism. <laughs> I thought you were making a joke. This was actually originally a 3D movie. Because when those hooks come out the window at you, that totally yeah. seems like a 3D shot. Yeah, sitting in the nose of the bomber there. That's a good 3D effect. Yeah. James Cameron is working on a conversion right now. <laughs> I hope that's a joke. Man, I hope this is a joke. Yeah, well, anyway, I guess invoking that American identity myth and then figuring a way to make more money off of it is the most American of all. <laughs> mm -hmm. John, I want to read this quote that I found really interesting. I want to get your thoughts about this. So here we are talking about how this is a fantastic, incredible score, and it has had this reputation of being a fantastic, incredible score for all these years. And yet, Hugo Friedhofer is just not as famous as these other people. Yeah. His career just didn't quite go to a place of fame, even though it seems like in Hollywood, everyone agreed that he was their master and he was a great guy and had wonderful taste. Yeah, that's definitely the impression I got from Raxon talking about him in class, is that everybody thought that Friedhofer had the best ear, had the best sense of things. Praise from Friedhofer was the highest prize. I remember Raxon saying that he had this incredible encyclopedic recall of everything in the entire canon of classical music. He was constantly paranoid of inadvertently copying something. So he would sometimes write very slowly because he was subjecting everything that he wrote to scrutiny of whether it sounds like anything that had ever been written before. 
but that's because he knew everything that had ever been written before. In fact, he was asked about, you know, resembling Copeland here, and his words were, he says, oh, good Lord, yes, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's not an influence that I'm ashamed of either. I got to know Aaron quite well and was tremendously fond of him. I like his forthrightness, his honesty, and his great musical integrity. And then read the next sentence. All right, he wrote the way that he felt. Actually, the influence was largely impairing in my weeding out the run-of-the-mine Hollywood schmaltz and trying to do a very simple, straightforward, almost folk-like score. I don't think I actually looked over Aaron's shoulder, but there was a certain use, perhaps a certain harmonic similarity at times, but that was it. But here's the thing I wanted to read and ask your opinion about. So Friedhofer, much later in his life, in the 70s, he was asked to put together a suite from The Best Years of Our Lives. He was a little frustrated how completely he was identified with The Best Years of Our Lives as though he hadn't done anything else, when in fact he wrote hundreds of other scores for television and film, not to mention hundreds of orchestration jobs, and that when people would say, oh, that The Best Years of Our Lives is such a great score, he would feel a little insulted by that. So maybe he was just in a bad mood, but in a letter he wrote, I sweat and strain over the goddamn best years, not enjoying it at all. Mind you, I'm quite aware that it's a hell of a fine score within the context of the film, but I'm torn with doubt as to its validity as music per se. At bottom, mm. it's practically monothematic and repetitious as all get out. Something one isn't particularly aware of when listening to it in the film, since the silent stretches are spaced out so that the thematic repetitions and their variants take the curse off the monotheism. <laughs> I think he must mean monothemism, or maybe that's a joke. Practically nothing but a bunch of triads with wrong note bass lines. <laughs> so that's what I want to ask you about. What do you think he means by wrong note bass lines? I mean, I think he's referring to the Copeland's pan-diatonicism of uh, the openness of a diatonic triad, notes taken out of a major scale, but then uh, recontextualized with a different note out of the major scale underneath it. Right. That's what I thought he meant, too which uh, I guess is a little glimpse into his compositional mind about how he thought about those things. So this home theme, which in the articles is always called the neighbor's theme, which seems to me a somewhat silly name for it. I agree, because it's really about Homer being home, you know, Homer's yes. sense of home life. And this is very much like a Copeland thing you hear in Appalachian Spring and Our Town and uh, a lot of his music from the 40s. Everything in the right hand, so to speak, even though it's not on a piano, it's composed this way, like hymns on an organ is a pure either major or minor triad. And they have implicit roots. Each major or minor triad has a bass note. So if you just play the actual bass notes of these chords, it would be these. And you could interpret it that way as, you know, that being the essential harmonic reality. But the bass line, you know, has a privileged role in determining what music sounds like. And instead of that, he picks this bass line. You can either hear it as turning those upper chords into extended chords, where, you know, that's the three and the five and the seven over a chord rather than the one, three, and five. Or two conflicting ideas, and it's that kind of tension between either these are rich, complex chords or kind of a two-layered emotional event that creates a lot of the richness. So this seems essentially Copeland, but he was actually asked about this chordal style, and he, as you say, as someone who knew all music from ever, actually cited an unusual source. He says that he thought of that stuff as coming from a piece he had heard by Ernest Bloch. Who? Ernest Bloch. Who? He's a composer. He was sort of a big deal in San Francisco, where Hugo Friedhofer grew up. Friedhofer cited these first chords of the second movement of his Concerto Grosso.
it's not even to that Copeland effect, but I guess it made an impression on him to have this chord over this bass note. It was just interesting to me to hear that he had a different citation for that than Copeland. Yeah, so we're being enormously praiseful here, which is merited, but let's just have a complaints corner. Do you have anything you didn't like about this? Well, I think you played a little snippet of music associated with Homer's kid sister in the movie, and we see her and her friends at a couple points kind of nervously tittering about his hooks for hands, and, you know, he resents them treating him as some kind of ogre because of them. The motif that Friedhofer chooses for the children and the idea of the children's mockery is what I would call the Nanny Nanny Boo Boo melody. Indeed. Nya Nanny Nanya is the lyrics I grew up with. No. Nanny Nanny Boo Boo is what the words are to that. Well, that's too many syllables, John. You're adding. I mean, his version is da 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 da. And then what happens? Oh, you think the second phrase is da 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 da? Yes. I mean, this is one of the all-time greatest folk songs, because this is also a tisket a tasket. Yes, that's true. It's also, it's raining, it's pouring. Absolutely. It's like the most important song in human history. (laughs) Yeah, this seemed like a little bit of Steiner creeping in, just being like, oh, I know what goes with that. Children, here's this for children. The kind of referenciness of it took me out of it a little bit. It seemed like it was invoking a feeling, you know, something about children that I didn't need. Yeah, I felt the same way. By being a reference, it's as though it's explaining something to you that needs no explaining. Yeah. I get what those kids are and I get what they're doing. I don't need a reference. But when I went back and looked at it, I realized why he was tempted to that. Okay. There's actually something subtle going on that I think doesn't really come across until you stare at it, which is unfortunate. But that figure, da-da-da-da-da, is in fact the same contour as the home theme. Da 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 da. With just slightly different harmonization of the intervals there. And he tries to show a kind of transition in Homer's experience between kids as taunting and his sister as just his sister that he loves and he feels safe in his family. The kids, he's angered by them hanging out outside the window. He feels taunted by them. You wanna them. see how the hooks work? You wanna see the freak? punches the hooks through the window and scares the sister. Take a good look. And then the emotion comes out of the scene and he reconfigures this so you hear it soften, sort of stop being the taunt and now it's uncertain what it is. And then later that night when we see him tucking her in, the softening continues until it has transformed all the way into the home motive. It's actually a really fascinating attempt at a psychological idea that the same object can create two totally different emotional responses while still being the same thing. And so he has da-da-da-da. In one sense is nya nanny boo boo nanny nanny boo boo to get it right. Thank you. And in another sense is this Homer at home theme that is a very warm and secure, uh, you know, loving sound in this movie.
But yes, the fact that one of those things is an external reference is disruptive. I have the same experience you mm -hmm. do. And I liked even less than that when he does a, just a couple home of Sweet Home. Yeah. Why do we, why are we doing that? It's yeah, like you, ha fair. you hung around Warner Brothers too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's a Steiner stick that you're, you're better than that. Be it ever so humble, he throws that in there. When Dana Andrews has woken up from the night of drinking and is... Uh, I mean, these like hangover comedy scenes, I could excise from the movie. And I guess that if given those and told by William Wyler, these are funny because they drank too much. I guess this is what you have to do. Play some funny music. But the whole scene where Frederick March, you know, throws his stinky shoes out the window and... You know, I like that scene. Okay. I liked that the most explicitly militaristic <laughs> sound in this score. You know, the snare drum that he only uses in this one spot and he uses it for a joke. It felt very much like the same sentiment as those Irving Berlin tunes about G. Willikers and stuff being in the army, like This is the Army, Mr. Brown, or um, Oh, How I Hate to Get Up in the Morning, right? Like cheerful, goofy, aw shucks, it's a tough life in the army yeah. kind of a thing. I thought, <laughs> I thought the joke played and I thought it really pointed out how much he was not doing military stuff for the whole rest of this movie about these military guys. I essentially thought that that scene pointed out how much the movie and the music were not doing the kind of artificial, prefabricated good humor that characterized that era so much and that was so available and that obviously the audience of the day would have lapped up if they had had some people, you know, bonking their heads on things and hiccuping. <laughs> right. You know, why not? Why not put more of that stuff in this movie just because you can? He does, you know, some Mickey Mouses. They're done with great skill. I mean, the fact that this was the top oh, orchestrator, of course. You hear every time he brings in the Celesta for just a little whoof, <laughs> it's wonderfully done. Hey, yeah. speaking of scenes of these guys waking up and having their hangover moments... If I were to play you just this little snippet, if I dropped the needle right here on the record and asked you what movie is this from, if this was the name that tune game that you did for me at the end of the AFI list that we did, what score is this? It's on the waterfront. I mean, Bernstein stole two of his themes from this one moment. Yes, I heard Leonard Bernstein a bunch of times in this. You know, there's a whole theme we haven't played, so we should play it here. There's this Fred Zwa-Wobbly Guy music. Mm -hmm. I've seen some people saying that it's the Fred and Peggy love theme, but I don't think it is. No, I don't think so either. It's, yeah, like you said, Wobbly's trying to get his feet under him in various ways. Right, at first it's Fred is so drunk he can't stand up. But then it comes back later for, like, Fred's life feels like this, feels jazzy. Yeah. And I did wonder a little bit, why is this jazzy sound associated with Fred? Is it just because he's poor? I'm not sure I feel great about that, but it seems like that's not quite what it means. What does it mean to you? I think it's bluesy and jazzy because it's drunk times, <laughs> because it's the carousing out with the boys getting drunk kind of stuff. Which, by the way, this fictional town, Boone City has some kind of nightlife. <laughs> My God, the the clubs that they... It goes to like a dozen different clubs, all of them with a top-level band. In fact, isn't that Gene Krupa yeah. playing the drums in one of these night spots that they head out to? Yeah, the very first shot when Greg Mark says, let's go out on the town. Boom, then they show actual Gene Krupa. Yeah. 
So, uh, yeah, it's a good town to go out. I wish I could go out in that town. But you know, John, you'd just end up at Butch's, ultimately. <laughs> That's the place to hang out. I guess we've gone this far without saying where. The eponymous Butch is played by Hoagie Carmichael, the great songwriter and pianist himself, who was kind of a personality at the time. But he gets to kind of have a cameo sitting at the piano playing his own tunes like Lazy River. What does she want? You. Oh, why can't they leave a guy alone? He does such a great job doing the heart-to-heart while noodling on the piano. Which you can tell it's absolutely him really playing the piano. Yeah, there's some actual piano playing on screen, and there's the scene where Homer says he's been taking piano lessons, and then lo and behold, he has. He's playing this chopsticks arrangement that he can play with his hooks because it's two notes at a time. Pretty cute. I wonder if Hoagie Carmichael arranged that. I bet he did, on top of Hoagie Carmichael playing this, you know, boogie-woogie accompaniment underneath it, which is great. Right. And the sequence is actually about what's going on way in the distance in Deep Focus by uh, Greg Toland. Fred is telling Peggy he can never see her again on the phone in the background while Chopstick is going on in the foreground because it's a good movie. <laughs> but So back to Leonard Bernstein. Yeah. What were you going to say about On the Waterfront? Yeah, there's this one moment that has the seeds of the two main themes in On the Waterfront, I think uses a very similar arrangement of these notes that wind up being the beginning of the love theme in On the Waterfront. And then on top of that, we hear the tail end of the, you know, the main Marlon Brando theme. I don't know. I think it's got to be he took influence from here. Well, just to make the chain of imaginary influence go uh, all the way around here, if you read about that theme, people say, oh, it has a Gershwin-esque, it sounds like Gershwin, which, sure, anything with the blue notes uh, written around that time would sound like... played on clarinet. But what it sounded like to me was On the Town by Leonard Bernstein. Not the movie of On the Town, but the original musical. He does these kind of sleepy chords when uh, Fred is slumping down in front of his wife's apartment. With a saxophone over it, it's the same texture as the sleepy subway ride chords from On the Town. And when Fred's drunken theme progressively over the course of the movie starts to straighten out and sober up, he takes the contour of it, da-da-da-da-da, and starts turning it into this serious da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, exactly that is one of the main motives in On the Town. All right, so Turnabout is fair play. Yeah, Turnabout and Coincidences are fair play. So this movie, I would say, ends with a one-two of incredibly powerful musical sequences that we should probably talk through each of them in turn. Yeah, we probably should, and we should probably do it... uh, Now. Now. Let's do it now. How about... (laughs) Okay, so this long sequence starts where Homer is at... The soda fountain where Fred works. And Dana Andrews actually makes some Sundays on screen. And what do you think? They're not great, right? The cherry falls down immediately. They're not really symmetrical. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, well, that's why they call him a soda jerk. Kudos to him for trying. Doesn't do it as well as Hoagy Carmichael actually plays the piano, sure. That's right. So then the only really unsympathetic person in this whole deeply compassionate movie is this guy who pulls up and orders a sandwich and starts saying increasingly angering stuff to Homer about, uh, we fought the wrong war, we shouldn't have fought. Oh, the Germans, we didn't need to fight them. We should have left them alone. It's all, we got roped into this by radicals in Washington. It's all a setup. You know, sorry you lost your hands for nothing. But Fred punches this guy and loses his job, and Homer plucks this flag pin that the guy is wearing. He feels like, you don't deserve to be wearing this flag pin, and he takes the flag pin with him. Then the movie starts to gather force for the personal catharsis for both of these characters, and it makes its way there with continuous music, and uh, it's such a powerful buildup. So after they leave the soda fountain together, they're walking down the street, and again we hear like a subdued version of the looking out the window at the exciting civilian life music that we heard in the beginning of the movie. Material that we haven't heard highlighted for a long time at this point starts to rise up, and Fred specifically tells Homer, I think you should go home and propose to that girl, because Fred's feeling sorry for himself and he has nothing, his wife left him. I'm a hot one to pick giving advice to the lovelorn, but I'm telling you to go see Wilma now. Take her in your arms, kiss her, ask her to marry you, then marry her. Tomorrow, if you can get a license that fast. If you want anybody to stand up for you at your wedding, there's my bus. So long, kid. So long, Fred. And Homer goes home and he just walks around, he's not saying anything. But the music is expressing all of the thoughts and feelings that are mixed around inside him. And it develops and develops. And before the actual dramatic scene happens, you have such a sense of the inevitability of things moving forward. It's impossible to write this music without thinking through the emotions for yourself. Like Hugo Friedhofer had to sit there and go, well, now he's feeling this. Well, now he's thinking about this and that affects him this way, uh, you know, but it is juxtaposed with this other thought. And this is the tension he's under. He has to psychoanalyze the character and transcribe it blow by blow. There's no other way to write this music because that's what it is. It's a play-by-play of these very specific shades of emotion. Yeah, what an achievement. Yeah, it's a performance that you think is the actor's performance, but it's really the composer's performance. You all right, home? Yes, Pop. I'm just going down and get a I mean, it's of both, well, and the director had to have an intention oh, there, okay. but the movie that you are watching with your eyes exists because the music is conveying internal states. I mean, it's like this is literary movie making because the music is doing everything that a novel would be doing to make the internal life be what's on screen. It's remarkable. So he's puttering around in the kitchen, and then Wilma, his girlfriend, comes into the room. Her sweet theme comes in with her. Wilma, what are you doing out this hour night? I saw you were up, Homer. I saw you through the window. It's now another element in this pot that Friedhofer is stirring of all of the different things swirling around Homer's mind. Yeah, and her theme, to my ear, that represents a slightly different aspect of the Copeland style, which is the use of actual folk materials. I don't think this is based on a folk tune, but it resembles when Copeland took actual cowboy tunes and put them into Rodeo or Billy the Kid or various pieces he wrote. It sounds like it has so 
some lyrics. It sounds like it's uh, mm-hmm. some kind of a folk tune. Pretty much every other time he's played it, it has been played straight because it functions more as a song tune than most of the other melodies in this movie. But in this scene, now the subject matter, pretty much for the first time, is Wilma. And what is Wilma capable of? Could she handle what it means to be Homer's wife, given Homer's injury and who Homer is now? And so her theme develops. It's the topic of the conversation. It expands. It shows uncertainty about it. Forever. Just because you've got a kind heart. Oh, Homer, why can't you ever understand the way things really are? The way I really feel. I keep trying to tell you. But, but you don't know, Wilma. You don't know what it'd be like to have to live with me. To have to face this every day, every night. One of my favorite moments in the whole score is coming up now, where Homer decides that he's going to show her the hard truth of what he has to do every night to take off his harness and rig of his prosthetic hands. I mean, his fear has been whether she can handle it. Right in the first scene, he says, she's just a kid. She's never seen anything like these hooks. And that's yeah. weighing on him the whole time. So he finally decides, he finally gets up the courage, perhaps spurred by Dana Andrews telling him to, perhaps spurred by the meaning wrapped up in the flag pin that he picked up at the beginning of this sequence because the music has run continuously since then but he decides that he's going to try he's going to trust her or just bring it to a head and have the moment he's been dreading where she is frightened and runs away he doesn't know what's going to happen but he decides that he's going to get to that decision point All right, Homer and he walks up the stairs he leads her up the stairs to his bedroom to take his hands off This walking up the stairs gets this echoing repetition of that octave theme that we were struggling to put our finger on exactly. It's just cascading up and up the staircase with him. I mean, my gosh, to contrast how to treat a staircase, how to treat somebody walking up or down a staircase... Right, the alternate score to the scene was... Dun, 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 yeah, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> listen to what is bound up in here. Listen to this meaning of actual decision and resolve and getting to a different place but having it be the same place that the octave lets you do. And because, like I said, motivically, the whole world of this movie descends from, arises out of this. And so when we hear this itself... We're hearing the truth, as I said, or just the ground. Everything has been laid bare. Right. He is just going to reveal what is. And just the repetition of it feels so meaningful, feels really considered. And it marries so much better with the import of walking upstairs than... You know. Yeah, it's not about walking upstairs. It's not which room he's in. It's not which direction right, he's walking. But it captures all of the resolve and the importance of asserting that he's going to take this active step. You can read that into walking up the stairs. You don't need to have the altitude spelled out for you the way Steiner does. Yeah. Oh, yes. In case you didn't guess who I was comparing it to. Yeah, I got it. I got you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this makes me well up every time I watch it. It's it gorgeous. It makes me well up when I watch it the first time, but then when I went back just to listen to the music, it works every time. It's so profound what's going on here. And so let's say he gets into the room. He says, here's what I do. I take it off like this. I can shake out of it myself. I've learned how to take this harness off. 
And this is actually contrasted with a scene we've seen earlier in the movie. We saw his father helping him get ready for bed. He needs some assistance, so his father is there taking the prosthetics off. And this also has beautifully sensitive, these chords that are, like we were saying, Copeland always does both simple diatonic chords and complex extended chords in a very sophisticated, tasteful way. A beautiful scene about his mixed feelings, about that he's safe, he's at home, he loves his family, but something has soured, he'll never be the same again. This cloud of darkness. But crucially, in that scene, the camera does not show us his stumps. It doesn't show the actual amputations because I at least experience it as, oh, yes, well, Hollywood, uh, you know, it wouldn't be right to show that. Right. This is how Hollywood movies operate. They establish some line of prudery and you go, yeah, okay. I'll, and the frame's not going to go beyond that line. Right. Right. And that's just taste. Like, you know, you don't show naked people in a movie. We won't show an injury. We won't show an amputee's stumps because uh, yeah, Hollywood doesn't do that. The audience meets a movie at its level of nervousness. And so the movie seems to be saying this is the amount of nervousness that is come on you can't go beyond that this is a very compassionate movie but we're going to spare you and then in this scene the camera just holds still he takes them off matter of factly there's his stumps amputated just below the wrist on both hands you're just looking at the truth and he's just showing it to her it has such a profound effect for me because yes what's going on between the characters but also what's going on between the movie makers and the audience The movie is essentially saying to the audience, we can handle this. We can accept this. There is compassion for this. Friedhofer plays almost sacred sounding chords, these very solemn minor chords moving in a very still way, not too motivic. So now he is exposed. This is his deepest fear. Now will come the moment of truth. And uh, this is just one of the most magical things in film scoring that I've ever seen. The answer to it, guess what the music for her response is? I'm lucky I have my elbows. Some of the boys don't. But I can't button them up. I'll do that, Homer. It's just her theme that you've heard every other time she's on screen. And that's how every movie operates. That's just how the thematic principle of film scores operates. But here, it's this profoundly meaningful answer to his question. Can you handle this? What will you be like in response to this thing that I wasn't sure there was compassion for? The answer is, she'll be exactly like herself, like she's been all along. Right. This love and this acceptance was there the whole time. Yeah. The theme that encapsulates the character just by continuing to be itself is the answer to this fear that has hung over him. The grace of just playing it, and now it's cathartic because it hasn't changed, because it's exactly the same. I feel like just the scale of what is being said to the audience there spiritually is pretty big. So I just find this intensely moving. Yeah, amen. All right, so what's the big finale here? The big finale is that Dana Andrews, Captain Fred Derry, his 
wife walks out on him. It was a bad marriage that neither of them really enjoyed. By the way, he's fallen in love with Teresa Wright, Al's daughter, over the course of the movie. So that's all right then. (laughs) He goes back to his parents' house, which is this ramshackle place literally on the wrong side of the tracks. You can see train tracks. But he decides he's going to get out of Dodge. He's just going to get on a plane wherever it's going and leave town. And so he leaves and he goes to the airfield. Doesn't care what plane he gets on. He's told, yeah, that plane's leaving later this evening. He says, great, I'll just go hang out there. So that's the setup. The music starts now as we cut back to his parents' house. Hortense. Hortense. Listen to this. So he left his parents, and they go through something he leaves behind because it doesn't mean anything to him anymore, is this citation he received for bravery in combat. The Distinguished Service Cross. And his father sits at the table and reads the text of this commendation he received. disregard of his personal safety, Captain Derry crawled back to his bomb site, guided his formation on a perfect run over the objective, and released his bombs with great accuracy. We hear, and for the second time in the whole movie, the main title, the noble, heroic main title theme that we heard over the credits at the beginning. Its only appearances for two hours have been sort of unhappy uh, asides about Homer's mixed feelings and thoughts about his injury. Here, finally, we hear it fully in its solid main title identity. It becomes the music of the great and dignified person that Fred felt himself to be during his military service. He was a captain. He was somebody. He was a great man. He did heroic things. Now, musically, we have to confront that that promise has not come true for him. The main title music plays heroically, nobly under the citation, and then it reaches the final chord, and blam, now Fred is, you know, junk. Yeah, junk, because we now cut back to Fred at the airfield as he walks amongst this graveyard of military aircraft. It's where all of these machines of war have come to die. Fighter planes standing on their noses, row after row of them, without canopies, without their wings, just these naked fuselages, like gravestones themselves. And you mentioned the blam on the cut to this shot. Let's talk about this blam. This blam is achieved with this suddenly dissonant texture in the low brass, whereas before he had been using the brass to play to the august military nobility. Now there's this bed underneath him as he's walking past these discarded airplane carcasses. Boy, it sounds like an airplane engine. In fact, let's jump back now. Let's take a flashback to earlier in the movie when he has a war flashback nightmare. He is reliving this air battle where his comrades got shot down. He's yelling for these guys to get out of the plane that's on fire. Come on, the rest of you guys. Come on, get out. Fred, wake up. And then he kind of wakes up and it's a waking nightmare for her last moment as she's trying to console him. It's all right, Fred. Go back to sleep. For that sequence, Friedhofer writes this music, which is explicitly imitating the sound of airplane engines. He's got the brass in these parallel tritones wandering up, up, up. Uh, 
pushing, making these growls like engines whining and groaning. The airplane is diving through the air and dodging the flak. It's such an evocative effect and you know, I was trying to articulate to myself, why is this feel so good, feel so right and valid when I don't care for like specific imitations of stuff in other contexts? Like I don't need to hear Nanny Nanny Boo Boo. Well, I don't think this counts as Mickey Mousing or a reference. It's sort of something else. Well, I think the answer is that it's referencing not the actual experience himself, but the nightmare of it, the echo of it in his head that he can't shake and that is preventing him from becoming a fully realized person in society again. Yeah, this would be called PTSD now. Yeah, yeah, but having it rendered in music as opposed to just hearing sound effects of engine noise makes it feel like it is this extra reality experience. It's not just that he was in this air battle, it's that he has the emotional imprint of the air battle in his head. So having it rendered in music is the you know emotional transcription of it. And that it plays in a loop that he can't stop. The figure on top of this is these five notes over and over. not music in five so it has this sense of repeating against the bar line can't stop it from repeating which is based again like on a falling third like everything else but this is a sick falling third and it's this kind of nightmarish thought process that just starts again he's picturing it again and he's picturing it again it's exactly as you say it's transcription into musical form of something that wouldn't be nearly as powerful if they were literal about it. Yeah. So now let's jump back to this answering bookend. At the end of the movie, he is awake and he is face to face with a real B-17, just like the scene of his nightmare. He climbs up into the cockpit and he sits there and relives this horrific war memory. When he's climbing through the cabin of the airplane, we hear again that same noble main title kind of fanfare theme. Then he gets all the way up into the nose. The camera pans across the wing of the bomber and you can see that the engines have been removed because the plane is getting junked. The propellers are gone. But nonetheless, the propellers start to spin up in his mind and Friedhofer spins each of these propellers. of the empty engine mounts where the propellers used to be. He spins up this dissonant brass growl that is the sound of the engine starting in Fred's mind. Yeah, I think it's trombones doing a flutter tongue so that they really sound like a buzzing engine. Yeah. Then the camera is his great camera motion swoops underneath the canopy so you see him through the plexiglass from below. It's a beautiful evocation of the plane taking off and being in the sky, just in the camera motion. And then Friedhofer takes over and you can hear the whole battle in his head. And again we come to this brass imitation of the airplane engines. It actually happens, I think, for less time than it happened for in the earlier nightmare scene. But the effect is so strong. It's such an indelible effect 
that when I watched it a second time, I was kind of surprised at how little time it actually takes up. It's true. It's only a few bars of that very strong effect. But it just looms so large in your memory. He never loses sight of the emotion through all of these other techniques that we've been talking about, playing these motifs against each other and keeping up the compositional integrity. And yet he's still able to weave in this onomatopoeia, pure sound imitation that so perfectly describes the trauma in his head because it's playing it out. Uh, yeah, it's breathtaking. Hey, bud, what are you doing up there? Hey, you! What are you doing in that airplane? You were saying that Friedhofer had a little bit of resentment that his whole career got nutshelled by this movie when people would talk to him. And it's kind of funny. You can see where in an interview he said, I actually revved the motors musically. It was a pure musical sound with just the barest smidgen of actual physical motor noise. But the real wallop was in the sound of the orchestra itself. Strangely enough, it was a trick that I had done years before, not as elaborately as this, but a plane taking off in which I fooled around with the simulation of motor noise. But at that time, nobody paid any attention to it. But here, it was so dramatically valid that I think that, rather than anything else in this score, was responsible for the Oscar. Oh, because, by the way, he wound up winning the Oscar for this score. He goes on to say, because this was something that the completely tone-deaf members of the Academy could grab onto. The subtleties were, I think, probably wasted on all except the music branch, but who cares? And I think he's dead right about that. I think that's exactly why he won the Oscar, not necessarily because he composed this breathtakingly effective score, but because it has this one moment in it that you can take home and go, oh, wow, yeah, he put the sound of the airplane engines in the music. That was something. It sounded like an airplane. Yeah, exactly. Right, there was a trick. There was a gimmick that the Academy can grab onto, but I think it's more than a gimmick. I think it is, like he says himself, it's so dramatically valid to render that memory in music rather than an actual sound effect. Yeah, I mean, this scene where he's just sitting still and having memories really is the climax, sort of the dramatic final punch of the movie. There's a happy ending afterward, but it in a sense has all built up to this because it's all about how they deal with what the war has done to them. And the war is always implied but not spoken about. And this is the moment of facing it right. on his part and on the movie's part. We never see a flashback, but this functions as the actual flashback. We get to see what happened to him in the war, but we don't. But truly, emotionally, we do because the music right. really embodies it. As I said, since it comes out of the main title music, and confronts it it's the big secret in the movie is what this felt like so it's pivotal and i saw that dana andrews said that when they were filming it he thought it was just a waste of film he said he thought this is william wyler just indulging his own nostalgia because he had uh... in fact william wyler himself flew in airplanes in world war ii he wasn't a bomber but he was making documentary films on behalf of the army he actually got his hearing really damaged from his experience in the war which we maybe <laughs> we'll talk about that in a second but so yeah exactly <laughs> andrew said that uh, when they were shooting this he thought oh he's just doing this for himself because he wanted to hang around these planes and he thought these shots of him just sitting still in the plane he assumed they would get cut from the movie because it seemed stupid to him and then when he saw it he was taken aback that this was one of the most powerful scenes in the movie you know went and congratulated sam goldwin because he just couldn't have imagined that they would make anything out of this it's well edited. There's some very beautifully shot. The shot over his shoulder is wonderful. 
But it's this music. It's the music making it yeah. a real thing. Yeah. And apparently Weiler knew that that was what was going to happen because here I'm quoting that same interview where Friedhofer says, in discussing the score with Willie, he said, from here on, this is your baby. This music has got to tell the story. It's got to give the audience the feeling of, he didn't use the word, but it literally amounted to the catharsis that Dana goes through when he climbs up into the cockpit of this dismantled bomber. And you see him through the plexiglass. Yeah, there's a number of places in here where Weiler has directed for music to tell the story. We've talked about a bunch of them and left room for Friedhofer to make these kind of gestures, which makes it all the more surprising to learn that Weiler didn't like this score. (laughs) Yeah, he hated it. And Friedhofer was very well aware that he hated it. (laughs) Here, I'll read one more clip out of this uh, interview. Friedhofer says, but he hated it. He literally hated that score. He asked me, why didn't you give me something like Wuthering Heights? That was Alfred Newman's score and a beautiful one, but I think it would have been highly inappropriate in this film. Which, incidentally, he got this film because Weiler wanted Alfred Newman to do it, and Alfred Newman said, uh, I don't want to, but you should hire Hugo Friedhofer. Alfred Newman basically got him this job. Yeah, and so Friedhofer attributes his difficulty in processing the music to the fact that he was very, very hard of hearing and had to rig up some kind of amplification system on the set to hear the actor's dialogue as they were being recorded. Friedhofer said that Weiler had trouble hearing low frequencies at all, and then when he could hear them, he hated them because... (laughs) hurt it hurt yeah because he had this literally damaged relationship to the sound waves so therefore he was highly dependent on what other people would tell him about the music so getting nominated for the oscar and then winning it and then hearing a lot of people say nice things about the score brought weiler around he eventually wrote him a letter taking back all of the bad stuff he said about it originally and uh, amazingly fried harvard bore no grudges about this he said he would work with william weiler again in a second he thinks he's a great director so you remember the other William Wyler movie that we've talked about. Yeah. Although I had forgotten that it was a William Wyler movie. Ben-Hur, Friedhofer says that Miklos Rosa asked him, sort of worried. He said, I heard from you that like William Wyler's <laughs> taste in music is not reliable. And he said, yeah, he pretty much depends on other people's opinions. <laughs> and he said that he later saw Rosa and Rosa said, yeah, it exactly happened to me. Like Wyler hated the music to Ben-Hur until like his aunt told him that it was good. Yeah, I ran into Mickey again. He stopped about 15 feet away from me and started shaking his head. I said, what's the matter, Mickey? He said, well, you remember I asked you about William Wyler. I said, yeah. He said, well, you didn't tell me half <laughs> yeah that quote was unnecessary i just wanted to read sure. it because i thought it was cute that he calls miklos rosa mickey it's just interesting to hear that william wyler had bad hearing and possibly bad taste and second guessed and didn't like things that were widely considered good until he was told they were good but that he also clearly knew that music was a major part of making a movie and that he could in fact say all right this is going to be a scene where we just see the guy sitting still And you play what he's feeling. That happens several times in this movie. That takes a serious commitment to music. Okay. Well, I think we have made a serious commitment to music and to this music. Classic uh... John Segway. Here we go. (laughs) Thank you very much. I've been waiting for it. Well, I think we've both been waiting for it. So now let's sum up. I think all of our (laughs) listeners have been waiting for it. All right. Closing statements, John. Hey, listen, as a closing statement, what this put me in mind of is it kind of made me nostalgic for the good old days when we were going through the AFI list, thinking about, you know, all of these towering achievements and these icons in the landscape of film music. And we were grappling with what we thought about them and ranking them ourselves on this list. And I thought maybe uh, we could go back and take a look at our old list and see where you might want to slot it in. Maybe we don't have to make an exact rank 
thinking, but I think it would be fun to like see where in the landscape we want to put this. Gosh, I haven't thought about that at all, but I agree with what you're saying, which is that this should have been on that list. Yeah, I think this should have been, I'll say, in the top half of that list. Yeah. And so I was looking on the list, where would I want to put that? I gotta look at the list. It's been a couple years here. Yeah, punch it up there. I think that this obviously goes above Ben-Hur and Laura, which I have like right in the middle of my list. Mm -hmm. I think that this is on a par roughly with On the Waterfront for the emotional punch it packs to me. I think I would slot it in right under On the Waterfront, which would put it in the number 10 spot on my list. Hmm. Well, longtime listeners will remember, I never really liked doing this, so <laughs> you haven't really tempted me into doing it. Okay, well then, like I said, you don't have to pick an exact spot, but like... Right now, having immersed myself in it, and just with ever-ascending admiration yeah. for it, the more time I spent listening, the more I thought, this really is a masterpiece. I feel like, oh, this is, you know, is in the top five. I don't know, is it, I don't know where to put it, but it's just doing more sophisticated things than most of these. I would put it way up at the top, but I don't want to have it fight it out with Star Wars or whatever. It's just not, you, you haven't tricked me into doing that. <laughs> Well, you have The Adventures of Robin Hood in your number five spot, which winds up being right underneath Star Wars for you. And I have Robin Hood right underneath on the waterfront in what is currently my number 10 spot. So it sounds like we both are putting it kind of on an equal footing roughly there. Yeah, yeah. I would absolutely put it there. Look, I was actually reminded, I will say, at times I heard and hear things that I admire about John Williams's technique. And I feel like that we talked about in talking about E.T. and Jaws about the way that themes explain the movie and their musical relationships represent their movie relationships. The way we talked about how E.T all the themes start with a rising fifth and that creates a sense of meaning right and here he uses the falling third in almost exactly the same way but also just the ability to stay with the scene and touch it up around the edges you know understand what aspects of the scene should construct the form and what aspects yeah. are surface and which aspects to ignore it seems like a very modern and sophisticated technique the closer i looked even though superficially it sounds very 40s and you know the highlight scene from laura that we talked about at length also went there but it was just the one scene in laura that's true. Also with Dana Andrews. Also with Dana Andrews. That's right. Yeah. I mean, in those episodes, we were praising Williams for his emotional sophistication of thinking. This emotion isn't exactly on the screen, but it's what the audience should be thinking about. And yeah, absolutely. Friedhofer is a master of that skill here. Like I said, you have to be thinking of the psychology of why this is on screen in the first place in order to think of writing this music. That's the art that I was excited to do this show about and make this list about. And so what a great, uh, what a great treat. It is a treat. What a great dish of asparagus this was. I think that this movie, I read lots of people saying one of the great movies, wonderful performances, and it has a good score. But the more I watched it, the more I felt like the score is why this works. The movie you see is the movie that the music makes. In the scene where Homer is walking around his kitchen, having a bunch of thoughts, you know exactly what those thoughts are. You feel that you're seeing a guy walking around his kitchen having these thoughts. You feel what they mean. And the music makes that movie for us. Mm -hmm. Without this score, it would seem like it was reaching in an aspirationally topical way. And that taste and care had been put into it. But because of the score, I never have a moment of thinking, well, they were really trying to get people to think about blah, I guess. <laughs> At least in the scored scenes. A couple times in the non-scored scenes, I have a thought like that. But... Like E.T., like Vertigo, and the ones that we put at the very top of that list, it feels like a movie that lives through the music. It becomes itself through the music, mm -hmm. and uh, that's fantastic. I bet a lot of our listeners will have listened to this episode not being familiar with this movie, and uh, 
it is worth your time. Yeah. It holds up surprisingly well for a profoundly 1946-oriented movie. It's true. Again, that's something I kept coming back to. I couldn't believe how mature the topicality was. In a way that, yeah, stands up. The political nuances that it appreciates, I don't think, you know, have aged poorly at all, which is saying a lot. I think it's because it doesn't offer politics. It doesn't offer criticisms. It just offers the idea that we can look at things as soberly as possible and compassionately as possible. Mm. And that's a timeless message. Yeah, you're right when you say that compassion is what this movie is all about. And uh, turns out, I guess that's what film music is all about because it makes you feel with. Yeah, yeah, the machine for empathy or someone said that. Film is about feeling things that aren't your life and music is the strongest mechanism for that really seems to be the case. Right. Music is the language that can translate the things not about your life into your own life. Yeah. All right. All right. uh, (laughs) Hard act to follow. All right. Now here, let's play some uh, orchestral music that perfectly imitates the sound of balls rolling around. (laughs) Wow. How did he get that effect? It's a very fancy orchestrational trick. Uh, No, no. Here's some music from the movie because we always do that too. And uh, John, spin a number. Okay. (laughs) I don't know what I wanted last time that this struck me as uh, too much of an academic chore. A notion I was glad to be disabused of. But what could I possibly wish to come out of the bucket now? First of all, whatever comes out is good because that's how the game works. And also, whatever your heart desires. What are you in the mood for? Pizza. Yeah, let's get pizza. All right. I'm reaching in my hand. Let's grab a ball, whatever it may be. Let's uh, see what it tastes like. All I've got means that next time we're going to be talking about... Huh. Dig this, Andy. The 1971, let's say, music for A Clockwork Orange by Wendy Carlos and and others. Because it's not all original music, but it's an original movie. And gosh, that's kind of a weird choice for us, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we have a bunch of stuff like that in our list. Stuff that doesn't quite fit into the category of originally composed score the way that everything we've talked about has but but for which nonetheless the music is tremendously important and i guess that's also our job to talk about so yeah maybe it'll be fun to approach a movie that doesn't exactly have an original score you know what i think it does have some original music but look we've talked about kubrick and non-original scores and we've sort of been hyping up that someday we'll talk about that so let's talk about this one it's interesting from a lot of different directions yeah the music that wendy carlos did for it is itself interesting and the music music that she adapted from other sources is interesting and how she did it is interesting and of course it's an interesting Kubrick movie yeah and uh couldn't be more different from this and we like that so let's do that boy yeah this movie we were just saying how this score for the best years of our lives is like at the highest level of what a score can do and now uh, maybe it's fitting to go somewhere else in terms of how music relates to a movie this isn't exactly a score but let's talk about it let's talk about how that's the case cool cool all right We have reached the end. Sign-off stuff commences now with us saying the words that constitute a sign-off as follows. Boy, this is a real... We went back to looking at our ranking of the list. This is another throwback to early days of the show when we kept hemming and hawing about what we'd say at the end of the episode. Keeping it real here by actually not remembering what we... If you like the show, leave a review. Thank you for leaving reviews if you like the show and left a review. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this, is, this is thrilling stuff, Andy. Almost done. You just say one more thing. Contact us by by <laughs> on Twitter. All right. Write us a review on your podcast app there. Uh, or just write us a review on a piece of paper. Yeah. 
and then uh, and just look at it. Put it on your wall. But then also take a picture of it and post it on Twitter at <laughs> Score Settlers so that we can see it. And then also uh, transcribe it for where you can write in reviews because those help us out. The more reviews show up on our show's page, the more people wind up coming across the show. So uh, help other people to come across the show. Write us a review and talk to us about it on Twitter at Score Settlers. And uh, Andy, let's talk about some more film music next time. <laughs> oh, a catchphrase. <laughs> Love it. See you then. Let's do it. Let's do it.